Few events have affected the National Transportation Safety Board as much as TWA Flight 800. It tragically exploded 12 minutes after departing New York back in 1996, almost exactly this date. It touched off a years-long investigation and a long list of lessons learned. Now the reassembled fuselage of the doomed 747 in storage in a Virginia warehouse for the last 25-some years is about to be scrapped. For some perspective on the significance of the moment, we turn to the NTSB's managing director, Sharon Bryson. Ms. Bryson, good to have you on. Thank you. And to the chief advisor for international Affairs, Frank Hildrup. Mr. Hildrup, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Let's begin with the immediate future here, this reassembled fuselage, which the images were famous at the time of the plane recovered from the ocean and the whole accident reconstructed. What's going to happen next with this and why? The training center lease comes to an end in 2023. And as a part of our assessment of our training needs and, and the way forward, there was a decision made that we could train in today's digital environment without having to have the actual reconstruction to be able to do that. And so it is the 25th anniversary of this tragic accident. And along with the the closing of the training center facility, we felt that it was a, a good time for us to decommission the reconstruction that was so critical in the investigation in the early days. In other words, this reconstruction has been used to teach new generations of investigators what to look for in aircraft wreckage, but now that can be done with simulations. Fair way to put it? That's correct. It's been here since 2003. We were fortunate enough to have the victim families, those impacted most by this tragedy, allow us to use it for all those years for training purposes. And it has certainly served a great purpose in that regard, and we're very much appreciative of them allowing us to use it for training purposes. Got it. So it'll be scrapped. And the investigation itself was a long one. It took several years for the NTSB to come up with, in fact, the uh, engineer that devised what was the most likely scenario won a Service to America medals, because I interviewed him a number of years ago, in analyzing that quarter second of tape that seemed to indicate what happened in the fuel tank, which exploded How did that change the NTSB and some of the intra-governmental arguments that ensued after the accident? The accident investigation itself took about four and a half years total. It's not the longest investigation in our agency's history, but certainly the next to the longest investigation that we've conducted. The reconstruction shows, I think, demonstrates clearly the extent to which our agency will go in order to be able to be sure that we have it right prior to making any recommendations for changes. Certainly, you you hit on a very good point. There there are really three things I think that are that are key coming out of this accident for the agency. Number one, there was the passage of the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act, which changed the way family members were treated, the information they were provided, um, all of that following a major aviation disaster. The second was that it was very clear that there were federal agencies that needed to work more closely together and that when an accident or tragedy like this happens, it's important for our government to speak with one voice um, to those people who are most significantly impacted And then the last is, I think, for our agency, the idea that when we make a recommendation that at the moment in time doesn't have a clear path for implementation, we still need to make those recommendations 
our recommendation and our the fact that it was on our most wanted list for 10 years is what we believe caused the development of that technology that today makes aircraft far more safe. We are speaking with Sharon Bryson, Managing Director of the National Transportation Safety Board, and with Frank Hildrup, the Chief Advisor for International Affairs. And Frank, you were at the scene, I understand, at the aftermath of that crash. Tell us what you recall, and then let's get into some of the reconstruction details. Well, I was part of the GO team that that was uh, dispatched early the morning following the accident. You know, there was so much activity when we got up into the area, lots of FBI personnel, lots of other assistance from uh, local authorities. I recall it being quite overwhelming of a scene. We knew we had a huge job ahead of us, and we had to start that process of uh, reconstruction at some point. But first, to do that, we had to recover wreckage. So that was the, uh, the, the first thing I remember. But this is, uh, we've done this before. Uh, it's the kind of thing that we have to just have a process and stick with it. And I think that uh, over time, that's what we had. Eventually, we had recovered enough wreckage to start to see certain aspects uh, in the wreckage and also begin the idea of reconstruction. And were you aided by the fact that it did take place, one, over the ocean so that all the parts didn't burn up as they often do when planes hit the ground, big planes like that at high speed, and also by the fact that it wasn't very far offshore that it did occur such that you could recover most of the pieces within a reasonable amount of time? Well, I think that's a good point. Uh, It's certainly, uh, obviously, when we have an event, an in-flight event, in-flight fire, in a lot of cases, if there's a post-crash fire, it it may obscure that kind of damage. So that it's a good point. And that certainly was something maybe in our favor a little bit. But then you're dealing with the water recovery. Luckily, it was diveable. We had huge assistance from the Navy divers, and it took quite a bit of time. The other thing that we realized pretty early on, we all knew about what the stories and speculation and rumors, we had seen certain things on on tape ourselves to wonder what may have been involved here, but we knew we had to have a very, very extensive recovery effort, which continued throughout the year to the point where even we, we used a kind of a scallop trawler to just dredge under the sand to make sure we got everything. But we had to answer the questions for ourselves. Uh, we had to answer questions for the FBI. And we had to answer questions for the for the public, and, and that's ultimately what you see with the with the extent of our recovery, extent of our reconstruction. That's those are the reasons that we went to such great lengths. We wanted to be sure we not only ruled a lot out along the process. I don't think people understand how much that's part of our investigative process is to rule out certain aspects as we go along, but but maintaining focus on on where the evidence is leading us. And you needed 93 feet of fuselage to really determine in this case, in contrast with, say, you know, the earlier flight where an American Airlines engine fell off, where you could concentrate on that part of the plane and you wouldn't need the tail to find out why an engine fell off. In this case, you needed as much of the plane as you could possibly reconstruct, correct? I think that's mostly correct. I mean, obviously, the airplane, 93 feet is perhaps uh, maybe around half of the length of the airplane. I'm not sure exactly, but it, we certainly could have done more, but we we reconstructed what we needed around the center wing tank. As we began recovering more wreckage and, and starting to look at that, that's where there was a lot of interesting pieces with fire damage. The pieces, again, the pieces that were found earliest in the debris path were, were several parts from around and including part of the center wing tank. And obviously, that's going to tell you quite a bit. So our focus went there within the week's 
uh, of starting to recover things. But we also wanted to extend the, the reconstruction to make sure that to answer questions that it could have been some external event, perhaps, and make sure everybody saw what we saw, make sure we're answering questions for the FBI once again to make sure we had enough wreckage and reconstruction around the center wing tank to answer all of those questions. And that was early in the Internet age or the mass Internet age. There was a lot of speculation on Internet forums and email at that time that seemed to take that had a different view of what happened. They thought there was some conspiracy to cover up a missile attack and so forth. And people thought they saw these things. But in the end, you had to kind of filter out. And I guess I'm asking you, Ms. Bryson, that's got to be a factor nowadays is to make sure people stick to the facts of the investigation and try to tune out all that Internet noise. That's correct. This agency, this independent agency, is responsible to gather those facts, and we present those facts once they're vetted. We will release information. I'm sure you're aware of some of that. Uh, We release information that we know to be factual as we're going through the investigation and try to stay the course with those things that we know to be factual. And by the way, you mentioned that this investigation was the second longest. What was the longest? The U.S. Airways 427 accident that happened in Pennsylvania prior to TWA 800. And when I say difference in time, it's really a few months um, in terms of length of time for the investigations. But technically, 427 was a longer investigation. All right. And just to summarize this, then, is this something that in the annals of NTSB is taught to new employees and to incoming employees as this is the quintessential way that we approach things? And now we try to have a good intergovernmental cooperation. And also we we take the time that it takes to get to the bottom of things. Those very basic principles are are taught to our investigators and taught as much as we can to those who provide support to us when we're conducting an accident investigation. I think as important to that is that these investigations are so important that we simply can't get it wrong. And we want to take the amount of time that is required to gather the facts, do a good analysis, and make recommendations to keep it from ever happening again. Sharon Bryson is Managing Director of the National Transportation Safety Board. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Frank Hildrup is Chief Advisor for International Affairs there. Thank you as well. Hey, thanks a lot. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six 
actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. 
I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.